So your immune system very carefully controls this process because it does not want to make antibodies unless the virus is out in the bloodstream. Because if it does, it reduces its ability to fight in the lung where things got in. Which means that if I had a way to screw this up and make you start making lots of antibodies and not make cytotoxic T cells, I would actually make you fight the infection in the lung worse. And if you did that, you would shed more virus for a longer period of time and your lungs would get sicker. Which means that if I have a way to do this, I can actually make you go from the 70% to the 30%. Right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes this will happen with your second infection, all right? Even if you handled it well, the body will say, oh, okay, if it's going to come back and we get a second one, we'll go and make antibodies. But even then, it regulates it because when it's got the signals that says we're fighting virus, it knows that this is what wins the war. This does not win the war. That slows the battle down to the speed that these guys can handle it, all right? So let's talk about vaccines and how they work, because um, not all vaccines work the same. Now, I want to state for the record, I am not an anti-vaccine guy. I am very glad my mom and dad gave me measles, rum, rubella. I wish chickenpox vaccine had been available when I was a kid. I'd give my own kid MMR and chickenpox vaccines today, make sure some other things were taken care of first. But the way those vaccines work, those viruses actually all have one thing in common. They very quickly get out of the lung and go into the bloodstream, all right? So most of their damage is not caused in the lung. Most of their damage is caused by the tissues they go to when you get all the rash and all that nasty stuff coming up. So if I give you an injection of those live viruses, and those are all live virus vaccines, you will actually see cells that get infected, attack natural killer cells. All of the signaling happens just perfectly. You get some antibodies, you get some cytotoxic T cells, and now the next time you actually run into the real virus from German measles, everything has been programmed to work exactly right and you can have everything exactly the way you want it. That is why I am a fan of measles, mumps, rubella, and chickenpox vaccine. So you've heard people out there saying that Dr. Stock is an anti-vaxxer, all right? I, yeah, and I don't fork the cat, and I don't kick the dog either, all right? Um, now let's ex explain some things we can do to make this go wrong. So what if we actually gave you a vaccine, and let's say you had some nutritional deficiencies that make this communication between the, TH, the T helper cells and the macrophages does not work right. What if you had some stuff that made it so the natural kill cells don't work right? Would it be possible to make this thing go wrong if I took a pathogen that normally doesn't spread easy and I injected it into you? So let me take you through the normal way that vaccines get tested for efficacy and safety and why they're like that. So in the 1960s, the FDA did not require that any vaccine have animal trials before it was done in humans. You could just take a group of kids, divide them in half, give some of them dummy shots and some of them real shots. So we did this with a virus called respiratory syncytial virus or RSV. RSV is a virus which infects the respiratory system and does not rapidly get out into the bloodstream. So what happened in that trial? Started off, things looked pretty good. You looked at the people who were vaccinated versus the people who were not, started off, the vaccinated kids actually did better, had less RSV. But then, all of a sudden, at around nine months to a year, the number of kids with RSV in the vaccinated group started going up. And as a matter of fact, they actually saw more children die of RSV in the vaccinated group than in the unvaccinated group. What happened? Well, it turned out that there was a problem with the vaccine because that's a bug that doesn't rapidly get into the bloodstream. So the first thing you did was reduce the amount of these guys who are fighting in the lung and the respiratory tissue, and those tissues got sicker and sicker. But even worse, you drove an abnormally high production of antibodies, and you caused the development of the enhancing strain. So what is an enhancing strain? By the way, most of the time this is a pathogen-dependent process. You have a pathogen that has some receptor that finds a thing on a cell, and then it changes shape and actually pushes the virus into the cell. And you could actually make a strain develop whose receptor could be augmented with the antibody bound to it that it made the thing actually easier to get into cells. In fact, you could actually make it so it could primarily infect white blood cells. And now your own antibodies became your enemy and made this virus so it could not just infect lung cells and skin cells, it could infect white blood cells and destroy them too. 
and that process is called antibody-dependent enhancement. And it's not just been seen once in the 1960s. The Philippines tried to make a vaccine for a virus called dengue virus and didn't do their animal trials well, and they managed to give a whole bunch of people in the Philippines dengue virus infections that went out of control for the antibody-dependent enhancement. As a matter of fact, it is such a reality that the CDC actually commissioned a group of people to advise it on what it should put in the um, informed consent for the COVID-19 vaccines. And they came out and said specifically you should mention antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. It's not theoretical. It's been seen with other viruses. It's been seen with coronaviruses. And this should be exposed to the American population in their informed consent. Did the CDC decide to heed that advice? No, they decided not to heed that advice. And so there, if you do manage to get informed consent on your experimental vaccine, and by the way, the package insert that the pharmacist gets with it is totally blank, all right? There is no warning about ADE in that thing. So after the debacle of 1966 with respiratory syncytial virus, the FDA said, now if you want to have a vaccine approved, you have to go ahead and do animal trials, and we have to make sure the animal trials are working out and everything's going good before you can give it to humans. So fast forward to the 1970s, when the next virus that the federal government told you was going to get you killed, swine flu came out, and the federal government decided it was going to save you from dreaded swine flu vaccine. So we did some animal trials, because we see this crudy's coming. We better get ready. Animal trials look pretty good. We got short-term animal trials. Let's start giving it to humans. So you start giving it to humans, and lo and behold, Guillain-Barre syndrome, an autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks the lining of all your peripheral nerves, started to develop more frequently in people who took the vaccine than people who just got infected normally. And after, I think it was 28 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome were found in the VAERS system, they said, okay, you can't keep selling that virus, that vaccine, rather. 28 cases, remember that number. That's the number of Guillain-Barre syndrome cases that had to be developed before they shut off the program and turned it down. And after that, they said, okay, look, now if you're gonna take out with a vaccine for a critter, you gotta do animal trials, you gotta follow them out two to three years. By the way, when Guillain Bracerum started to come out, about that time, they started to see autoimmune diseases developing in the rats. So the FDA said, okay, here's the new rules. If you wanna do a vaccine, you gotta have, got have animal trials, they gotta go on two, three years. If you manage not to kill the animals after two or three years and no enhancing antibody strains develop, then you can take small groups of human beings and you can inject them with various small doses of your vaccine and we'll follow them out for two to three years and see, first of all, what all organs your vaccine ends up in. And we're gonna follow those organs for two to three years and if none of those organs end up having anything go bad, then we'll let you take a large trial of human beings and you have to give them, divide them up into placebo and treatment and you have to follow them out for two to three years. And if nothing goes wrong in those two to three years, and we don't see antibody-dependent enhancement developing, then you can take that vaccine out and you can offer it to the entire human population of the United States. Which of these steps was skipped in the development of COVID-19 vaccine? Every single one of them. Now, I've had people say, well, we had to do that because it was an emergency. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in the middle of an emergency, it is not necessary to take a ball-peen hammer and smack me in the middle of my face. It is not necessary to take a belt sander up and down my back. And this is because these are things that we don't know are going to be helpful before we do them. You would only do a thing in an emergency if you had reason to believe this thing was very likely to work right. And you didn't have that for any coronavirus vaccine because in animal trials for the SARS and MERS coronavirus vaccine, using four different types of antibody of, of uh, vaccine methods, in both of those two coronaviruses, all of the animal trials had to be stopped because they all caused antibody-dependent enhancement to develop. And in fact, in at least one of the studies, all of the animals died from the coronavirus they were trying to vaccinate against. Now remember, coronaviruses don't kill 30% of rats. Or they, I mean, they only kill 30% of rats. They managed to get all the rats to die because they gave them vaccines. They had their immune system pumping out so many antibodies and so little cytotoxic T cells that as soon as the enhancing strain developed, it started running through the population of rats and you got lots of dead rats. Despite the fact that they knew that it happened with two previous ones, they said, oh, this is an emergency. We have to skip all the safety steps and go make us some vaccines. Now, none of that proves that these vaccines are bad. They could still work out right. 
So what is the data we have for the vaccines? Um, what placebo-controlled, randomized, blinded, uh, long-term data do we have for safety and efficacy in placebo-controlled long-term trials? We have zero. Do we have any data, uh, placebo-controlled, randomized, blinded trials in the general population for any of the COVID-19 vaccines? How many studies have been done like that? Zero. The way these studies were done was with very highly selected populations. So to get in, for instance, to Pfizer's trial, you could not have had a positive COVID-19 test. You could not have had COVID-19 disease. You could not have had symptoms consistent with COVID-19, which means you couldn't have had influenza either, all right? Which means we're taking out all the people who have really bad immune systems. You also couldn't have any autoimmune diseases, and you couldn't be pregnant because pregnant people have an increased risk of autoimmune diseases. So all of these people were taken out of these trials, and in these highly selected trials, what was the result? Well, first of all, did it reduce the risk of death? And the answer is, uh, death from COVID-19. And the answer is no. In Pfizer's trial, they had selected such a healthy population, there were zero deaths from COVID-19 in the placebo group. Now, there were 23,000 placebo patients. At 0.2% death rate, there should have been four dead people from placebo. If the CDC is right and it's got a 2% death rate, there should have been 40 dead people in placebo. But despite knowing that there were zero dead people in placebo, this thing was said, oh, well, maybe there's a death benefit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the only way you can demonstrate a death benefit when you have zero deaths in the placebo group is if the vaccine can bring some people back to life. <laughs> there were no dead people included in the treatment arm, so we don't have any data on that. Um, did it reduce symptoms? Uh, the answer is no. Actually, it caused a great many symptoms. Dan, I, I thought it reduced symptomatic diseases. Oh, oh, it did reduce symptomatic diseases. It reduced 164 cases of symptomatic COVID-19 disease, uh, which is a painful, febrile, fatiguing disease. And to get rid of those 164 cases, they had to cause 19,000 cases of sore arms, they had to cause 11,500 cases of fatigue and 6,750 cases of fever to prevent 164 symptomatic cases. You know why you didn't hear about that? The FDA decided we're not going to count symptoms. Those aren't going to be symptoms. Those are going to be side effects. And so we're not going to actually count symptomatic disease until two weeks after the last vaccine is done. Now, if I were to do a blood pressure trial and I come up to you and said, sir, I want to give you a medication and I'm not going to even look to see what it does to you during the first three weeks while your blood pressure comes down. We're only going to count the things that happen after the blood pressure's down. Would you be interested in using that blood pressure medicine? No, I would not either. I would really like to know all of the risks associated with my blood pressure medicine before I take it. But the uh, FDA and the CDC decided that just really wasn't important to look at. So what do we know so far about the vaccines and highly selected populations that are average and the healthier than the average population in the United States? They cause lots of symptoms. They don't prevent death. They did manage to show in these highly selected populations they would reduce your risk of hospitalization and severe disease. So let's give everybody their fair shake, all right? They did show that. What happened after three months in these trials? Vaccinated the entire placebo group. Actually, you know a young lady who works for Moderna confirms that over 90% of the placebo group has been vaccinated, all right? Because this was an emergency, that we had to offer these people this, even though we hadn't shown that we prevented anybody from dying. Last I heard, death was the only thing you really couldn't go back and fix later. But based upon this, vaccinated the entire placebo group. So when someone says, what is the long-term efficacy and safety of these vaccines, is it known with 95% certainty? The answer is no, it's not only not known, it will never be known because you couldn't get people to do that trial now. You couldn't do it because the entire population has got pre-experience with this thing and will be biased, and you won't be able to get an unbiased group of people to go into the trial. So when anybody says, is this safe and efficacious in the long term, the answer is nobody bloody knows with 95% certainty and nobody ever will, all right? When somebody tells you these are safe efficacious, I tell somebody, with what certainty do you know that? All right, because you don't know it with 95% certainty. And you never will. So does that mean we have no data on the long-term safety and efficacy? Well, no. We do have data which is less than 95% certain. Um, started off, these vaccines did not look so bad on the outcome of COVID-19 disease. It did look like it prevented severe disease, even used in the general population. Now, 
have to take a little bit of a grain of salt with that. Um, in the United States, we have no idea what the fact is because the United States screws up the diagnosis of COVID-19. All right. By the way, we still count it that way. You still get paid money and you get paid differentially because you're told if you're a hospital that you actually should not be testing people who have been vaccinated to see if they have COVID-19. All right. You're still allowed to do influenza tests on them, though. So you tell me that's not going to screw up the diagnosis rate? Okay. Well, but in places like uh, Great Britain and uh, Israel, they actually do keep the data very well and they keep all the right categories. We don't just look to see if you're vaccinated or not. We look to see if you're naive or recovered or not already. And in that data on the efficacy of the vaccines, things has turned very ugly, all right? Um, in the spike that started to come out with Delta variant, um, these vaccines started rapidly to lose efficacy. What situation would make a vaccine that started off working start to lose efficacy on the development of a new strain? Could it be ADE? There is a molecular modeling study that shows, by the way, that the antibodies that bind to Delta variant enhance the change the conformation differently than what the previous variants of COVID-19 do. In molecular modeling analysis, we can actually see that daggone thing change shape and go right for the white blood cell membrane. We'd love to have better data, but we can't get anybody to do research to actually see if there are enhancing antibodies, all right, that are out there uh, that I know of. No one's actually done the study. Um, and I can tell you the Israeli experience was when this spike in Israel started, it started off that 25% of the people in the intensive care unit were fully vaccinated, and then went up to 50, and then it went up to 70, and it topped off at 85% of the people in their intensive care units were fully vaccinated. Um, now, here is the explanation that they would like you to believe. That what happened was antigen escape. Doggone it, that Delta variant just changed so much that the immune system doesn't recognize that it's been infected with this virus before and doesn't respond. Well, there's some problems with that theory. We actually looked at people who got the SARS coronavirus back in 2002, and we went and tested their white blood cells and say, hey, do you recognize this COVID-19 virus? And they said, yeah, we do. We recognize that. There's a 20% genetic difference between SARS and COVID-19 virus. Do you know how much genetic difference there is between Delta variant and the, uh, and the uh, original variant? 0.3%. But you know, if it was antigen escape, if that was doing it, then we should have seen Delta variant just ripping through the population of people who recovered from COVID-19 already, shouldn't we? The protection rate in both Israel and Great Britain is greater than 99% for people who recovered from COVID-19. So that's right. If you've already recovered from this, your immune system is so on it that your chance of coming down with symptomatic COVID-19 is much less than somebody who's been fully vaccinated. As a matter of fact, we actually have that data from Israel. Do you want to know how much more likely you were to not be infected by Delta if you actually were fully vaccinated versus recovered? Because we have that data. It's not 95% certain data, but it's the best data we got. And uh, if you were fully vaccinated compared to somebody who already recovered from Delta variant, you actually had 13 times the risk of having a positive test of somebody who has recovered. You had 27 times the risk of coming down with symptoms of somebody who has already recovered. You had 13 times, excuse me, 7.6 times the risk of being hospitalized as somebody who had already recovered. And that was somebody who had already recovered within the last seven months. So he said, well, let's see how long this thing's lasting. If you're naturally recovered, is your immunity still working up to 18 months ago? And the answer was, if we looked at people who were recovered as long as 18 months ago, they still had seven times better immunity than people who were fully vaccinated within the last few months. So the reason I bring that up is you're going to hear this argument, oh, dear God, the intensive care unit is full of the unvaccinated. But, you know, that kind of makes the, the uh, story as, well, it's the choice between vaccine and nothing, right? But there's a third option, isn't there? There's augmented natural immunity. We could just help your immune system so it could fight this off. So when you hear that argument, oh, my God, this outbreak is a disease of the unvaccinated. The question is, not as a disease of the unvaccinated, is the disease of the unaugmented unvaccinated. So, because that's our third option we have to look at here. We're going to get into that one here in just a second so we can compare to see whether or not that would make a difference. 
So doesn't look, looks like antibody-dependent enhancement is developing for the present vaccines. Again, can't say with 95% certainty, nobody will do the study, but it's the only thing I can think of that explains the data we see. But maybe we can save the day with boosters, right? And maybe these vaccines will stop spread, doggone it. We'll just keep cootie from coming out those noses if we just vaccinate enough people, right? Um, so we had data that came back early on from San Francisco that showed, well, no. Uh, the people who are vaccinated when they do get symptoms seem to shed virus at the same rate as the people who are, get infected for the first time naively. Um, then Delta variant hit. And in Delta variant, we actually saw, and we did some studies in uh, Singapore that showed they were shedding 251 times as much more virus if you were fully vaccinated and you got infected with Delta compared to people who got infected with a different strain. Now, that's a little bit dirty data, all right, because you could say, well, maybe Delta's even worse on naive infections than the other strains were. Uh, the only problem was that is that would assume that somehow or other that the immune system didn't fight them equally well, all right? But remember, if you recovered from the alpha variant, you're 99 plus percent protected from Delta variant. So again, it's not antigen escape. It's not that the virus has become more lethal, right? It's that if you're vaccinated, you probably just don't fight this bug right. You don't make cytotoxic T cells very well. By the way, we have that study. You don't make cytotoxic T cells as well. We also know that if you're vaccinated, you make many more antibodies than somebody who's naturally infected and recovers. I have a patient in my practice who was coerced into taking a COVID-19 vaccine, and she actually didn't get the one that gets the best immune system reaction, and her antibody levels are 100 times the levels of recovered people. So how about boosters? Can we save the day with boosters? We'll actually have a little bit of data on boosters. Uh, we have some data on the shedding of how they affect shedding, because it turns out on very, very good data from Israel that there was a reduction of shedding from Delta virus, a Delta variant, if you were vaccinated compared to somebody who was naturally infected. Now again, not augmented naturally infected, all right, just somebody who was naturally infected. And it turned out that if you gave somebody a vaccine, you did reduce uh, the shedding uh, by about one-fourth for the first two months after they were vaccinated. And then after those first two months, you lost about two-thirds of the benefit. And at six months, there was absolutely no benefit at all. If you were vaccinated and you got infected, you shed just as much virus as a guy who is naive and unaugmented and got his first infection. Let me make that even worse for you. Um, if you looked at the response of people who are older than age 50, the people who actually get the most infections, get the most severe infections, shed the most virus when they're infected, you had a reduction of only one-third uh, the risk, of a third of the amount of shedding, and after two months it was completely gone. So after two months, you weren't reducing the shedding with your vaccines at all. Well. All right, Dan, we'll just give vaccine every two months, right? And keep it up going, right? Well, there's a problem with that. In that very same study, they looked at, well, what happened to boosted people when they got infected with Delta variant? And the answer is after you got boosted, you only got one half the reduction, um, not three quarters the reduction of a, of a naturally infected person. So it only gave you half the benefit. If you're over age 50 and you got a booster, you only got one third of your initial benefit, which means on the booster, you didn't get back everything you got before. Now, how long that lasts, we don't know. Study wasn't carried out long enough to give us that answer. But the idea that somehow boosters are gonna return and get you back to this viral shedding thing that you initially had, don't have any data that supports that. By the way, that's consistent with the development of antibody-dependent enhancement as well. Because over time, more and more bad strains develop. The immune system works worse and worse with every successive infection with the, with the enhanceable strain, the immune system goes more into antibodies, less into cytotoxic T cells, the response gets greater. So all of that's consistent with antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, we have another study just done with boosters. It's not been published yet. Um, it was actually, the data was submitted to the FDA. Um, the people at the FDA's advisory committee that gives them advice on vaccines reviewed the data, and then they came out and actually talked about the data they read. And it turns out that if you were vaccinated and then got a booster, compared to somebody who was vaccinated and took a dummy shot, you were actually more likely to die if you took the booster than if you took a dummy shot. There were more dead people in the booster group than the placebo group. 
there were four times as many people had heart attacks in the booster compared to placebo group. Now remember, initially we had shown that there was no reason to have any increased risk of death if you took a vaccine. But we stopped those studies at three months and we didn't have Delta variant going on at that time, right? Um, now these vaccines are very rapidly losing efficacy. They lose their ability to stop spread, which they didn't really do very well to begin with and didn't do very long when they did come out. Um, well, what about side effects and risk? All right, because we got our efficacy as dialed in as we can be for these vaccine series. What about side effects and risks? Well, let's start off with a discussion about the biochemistry of what a, a uh, spike protein from COVID-19 does. So I'm gonna bore you a little bit more because I like to bore people. Um, if you're a cell and I make you become inflamed, especially if I give you oxidative stress because you like eat lousy food or you smoke or you live in a biotoxic building or you know that kind of stuff, that cell will make an enzyme called ACE1. ACE1 produces something that is highly inflammatory. It causes scarring, it causes tissue to swell, causes the blood, levels, blood vessels to become thickened, causes blood to clot. So every time your cell turns on that enzyme, it has a check that it puts on it called ACE2. And ACE2 is the guy who says, well, don't make quite so much of that stuff, all right? It kind of moderates it. And it turns out that ACE2 is what the SARS and MERS and COVID-19 virus bind to to get into a cell and infect it. But the difference between SARS and MERS coronavirus and the COVID-19 virus is that when that virus binds to the ACE2 protein, it actually has a little piece from Ebola virus that's put on there which enzymatically cleaves and destroys the ACE2 enzyme and gets rid of it. Now think what just happened. You had an inflamed cell that was getting its inflammation under control with case two, and then you put in something that destroys that protein and makes this go away. And what would you expect to see? You expect to see blood clots, wouldn't you? All right. And you will note that it has been seen with all of the vaccines, this thing that we call thrombocytopedic thrombosis, low platelet count with blood clots forming in places. They've already given up and said, yeah, we know it happens more often with J&J &J and AstraZeneca. Uh, but it's been described with the other two vaccines as well. As a matter of fact, there's been studies done where we just took animals and injected them with spike proteins at about the same levels we would see with a human being who has symptoms with COVID-19. You know what happens to the animals? They get all the symptoms of COVID-19. Now, remember how these vaccines work. These vaccines are gonna go into your cell, both the mRNA and the DNA, uh, the J&J, &J, they actually turn that into mRNA and you end up telling a cell, make a toxic protein. That's right. You now have cells making their own toxin. Um, you should also know these vaccines distribute throughout the body more than any vaccine ever studied. That was not known when they were brought to market because they were not required to do the studies that show where all this thing went. But I don't think we found a tissue yet that this stuff doesn't end up. 20% stays in the arm. 80% is going into brain, liver, spleen, gonads, yeah, yeah all over the place, ladies and gentlemen, and making these tissues make a toxic protein. I have to sit back and ask guys, with the data we had from the coronavirus studies in the rats, why anybody thought, hey, let's take something which is really, really toxic and get cells to make it would be a good idea. Because now, if you're an inflamed cell that's already making your ACE1 and your ACE2, and you start to put this thing out on your cell surface, what happens to your ACE2? It goes down, and you rev up your inflammation and get even worse. So if you eat really bad food all day long, or you smoke, or you drink like a fish, or you live in a biotoxic building, or you eat food that's really nutritionally deficient, or you have some other things going on here, you are a sitting duck to make your own poison. Now, is that just a theory? Does anybody know what the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System is? Anybody doesn't know what, yeah, we know what that is. So it's been in veil 32 years, all right? It's a passive system where anybody come up and said, hey, I had me a vaccine and I had some problems happen. Here's all the problems I had happen. In an average flu season, 2016 to 2018, there were 71 deaths reported with influenza vaccines per year, on average for those three years. We're about what, nine months now? Nine months into the vaccines for COVID-19, does anybody know how many deaths have been repaired on the VAERS system? Oh no, it's 15,000 plus now. Now everybody says, well, you know, that's not placebo-controlled randomized blinded data. I will grant you it's not. And we don't have that. So we're gonna have to make our decisions on the best data we have, because I'm a doctor, I don't get to know things with 95% certainty all the time. You're a patient, you don't get to know them either. And so we're gonna make our decisions on the best data we have. 
and that is that this thing has caused more deaths in nine months than every other vaccine combined together has been recorded since the beginning of VAERS. 28 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome got the swine flu vaccine canned. It is far in excess of 28 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. They've already admitted that all three of these vaccines, which don't prevent death, even in very healthy populations who are less likely to have side effects, that these vaccines all cause Guillain-Barre syndrome. There's another interesting disease you should know about called acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. This actually is an interesting disease. 20% of people who get this will go on and develop MS. It's characterized by the immune system attacking parts of your brain and spinal cord and demyelinating it. In the 32 years of VAERS before COVID-19 vaccines, from all vaccines added together, there were 119 cases of ADEM. Hot off the presses. How many from COVID-19 vaccines in nine months? It's over 200. By the way, one of those case reports is a 29-year-old girl in my practice whose MRI of her brain and spinal cord would qualify for her MS if she had more symptoms. Right now, she got out of it with nothing but back pain, but that MRI is a bloody mess. One shot of Moderna. One shot of Moderna. Do we have any placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials on the net effect of these vaccines? Hot off the presses, just published. They took the three studies that were submitted by the vaccine manufacturers to the FDA for their approval, the ones that got them so they could get their experimental use approval, and the one that got the Pfizer vaccine so it could be approved for generalized use. And they said, what we're going to do is combine these three studies, and we're going to look at the rate of severe morbidity. That's something that gets you in the hospital or makes you so that you can't do your normal functions. And we're going to see whether that's greater in the placebo group than it is in the vaccinated group, and you know which group it was greater in. It was much higher in the people who were vaccinated. Which means that this vaccine, which didn't even save life in that very healthy, healthy group of people who were studied, was more likely to make you go to the hospital overall and have a really miserable time if you took the vaccine than if you just took your chances on COVID-19. So that is as good a safety data as I can make up for these vaccines right now. So when somebody comes out and says the term safe and, safe and, and effective, those are kind of nebulous terms, aren't they? It really doesn't, um, I mean, I could tell you that driving a race car is safe, all right? I could tell you that when I've got influenza, hitting me in the head with a ball-peen hammer is effective, all right? Maybe I just like being hit with ball-peen hammers. It makes me feel better every time I do it. I think Dr. Fauci does this regularly. That's <laughs> my guess. Um, so when somebody tells you, well, this is safe and efficacious, I really encourage you to ask them, will you show me the numbers, please? Because I'm a geeky guy, I read numbers, all right? Two people have resigned from the FDA over the protest of how Dr. Fauci and the CDC have interfered with the FDA's normal um, evaluation of these vaccines, upset that these things were being passed over for all their safety uh, requirements, that the signals were all going wrong for this, um, that you know, we were recommending this fact. By the way, that's something you should know about all the other uh, vaccines. If I came out with a vaccine that was restricted to a group of people, the FDA said, okay, you can only give it to people in the restricted class. So if we followed that rule, you would only be able to use this vaccine on somebody who had never been infected, didn't have any symptoms, never had a positive test, had no autoimmune diseases, and wasn't pregnant. Right now, the only person I think the CDC and the FDA doesn't want this given to is that flower. Um, maybe he just doesn't have an insurance card. Um, but guys, believe it or not, that's not a, a necessarily a, a complete reason not to take one of these vaccines. And it doesn't really evaluate everything the government could have done unless we look at alternatives. Because remember, it's not vaccine versus nothing, is it? It's vaccine versus augmented natural immunity. We could do something to help that 30% who is gonna get symptoms. So what kind of things could we do? Uh, turns out zinc, pretty interesting little chemical, uh, zinc actually interferes with that virus's ability to reproduce its own genes. It also gets rid of the oxidative stress that happens when you get a virus infection, because all cells get that. Um, studies have been showing that if you give somebody zinc versus placebo, it reduces the duration of symptoms, it reduces the, uh, the degree of symptoms, and the duration and degree of viral shedding by about 30%, just by giving zinc. How about hydroxychloroquine? 
Placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials showing on average around 50% reduction in symptoms. We have a few studies even saying they befriend to death, all right? Um, zinc, hydroxychloroquine interestingly works by making zinc move into your cells, all right? Quercetin, something we get from fruit, that actually has been shown to do the same thing. Looks like it's about as effective as hydroxychloroquine because it also moves zinc on the inside of cells. Um, and we had studies on hydroxychloroquine coming out very, very on in the, uh, in the uh, pandemic. I even hate using that term. It's, God, what a useless term. Um, but uh, there was a study published in uh, Lancet, one of the three supposedly really good journals, showing hydroxychloroquine actually had no effect on COVID-19 compared to placebo and actually had side effects. Used at an enormous dose that we would never give somebody when they're in COVID-19. Um, and then interesting, somebody said, you know, the side effects, even at that dose, are higher than we ever see with hydroxychloroquine by a big stretch in all of this. And uh, Lancet decided it was going to go back and look at the data and say, well, give us your raw data. And somebody said, there's just no way it could have those side effects. And then very quietly, Lancet retracted that publication. Now, until I'd seen this mass study retracted, <laughs> I had never seen a study ever retracted for anything other than fraud. Yeah, I mean, if you usually when you do something really stupid, and you just bad scientist printed an article, what they'll do is they'll print a, a, a um, compendium to it or an addendum to it that says, well, look, this trial's not everything we thought it was going to be. We should have made them in the conclusion, say, I made this mistake and this mistake and this mistake and this mistake, and they'll make it, but they only pulled a thing for fraud, all right? And they never really actually came out and said why we pulled it. They just said, well, you know, we're going to pull that study. Interestingly, it was on that study alone, and despite all the other studies that showed that hydroxychloroquine had an effect, that the FDA came out and said hydroxychloroquine is not to be used for treating COVID-19 because of that study. And you know what the FDA did after they retracted that study? Nothing. Yeah. Now remember, there, I forgot to tell you, there was one other thing you had to do to get your money from the Accountable Care Organization. Your accountable care organization had to use an electronic medical record system that reported to the government aggregate data on everything. So the government knows how many people have you have diabetic, how many of them you treated with an ACE inhibitor, how many are on a statin drug, how many pneumonia people got this antibiotic or that antibiotic. They can actually know all of that. And they cut your reimbursement if they find you having people who are diagnosed with COVID-19 getting hydroxychloroquine. So I can tell you what happened very quickly. The CEO of the hospital goes down to the people in the emergency room and he says, well, if I catch you doing hydroxychloroquine for some COVID-19, you'll be sitting on the curb waiting to get your own case of COVID-19. Um, we have cases of people who are frankly told that. Um, and so anybody who thinks that doesn't happen, guys, I can guarantee you, because I've been on that committee, I've seen how it works, I can guarantee you, FDA came out and said, this is not to be used for that. We know what's in your medical records. We know what percentage of your doctors are doing this. We know you can identify the doctor who's doing this. And that doctor is going to get canned. And every doctor knows it and knows that his family will lose their livelihood. Every doctor who has $350,000 in debt knows that he's going to go bankrupt if he ends up doing that. So that's hydroxychloroquine. Um, how about inhaled steroids? Guys, I've got to tell you, if you came into me five years ago and said, Doc, I got influenza and I'm having trouble breathing. The first thing we were going to do is give you steroids. And by the way, I was not going to use the federal government's plan because what is the federal government's plan for COVID-19? The federal government's plan for COVID-19 is you, sir, should go home until you are ready for me to put a tube down your throat. And when you're seven to 10 days into this and blue as a squid, you can come back to me and I'll put a tube down your throat and do something. But I'm not going to do anything for you in that first seven to 10 days, go home, drink water, maybe take some ibuprofen. But I can tell you, if you came into me with influenza and you said, Doc, I'm having trouble, the very first thing I would do is put you on steroids. I wouldn't wait for an eight week and a half into this. I would put you on steroids and I would do things to make your lungs better. Um, and you would get better from this, all right? As a matter of fact, I can tell you of all the things that we study in COVID-19, they all work even better if you use them early on, all right? But you know what? Even between steroids, hydroxychloroquine, and zinc, we have not hit the two big hitters, all right? The first of the two big hitters is ivermectin, all right? Ivermectin, you probably know, was made as a worm-killing medication. It kills worms in humans as well as animals. It doesn't just kill worms in animals. It was officially used in humans first. 
Turns out it actually binds to that spike protein from the COVID-19 virus and it binds to the ACE2 target that it does and makes sure that neither one of them can interact right with each other. Um, very rapid onset. Most of my patients when they're treated with ivermectin have results of improvement in 24 to 36 hours. 24 to 36 hours. Um, do we have any placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials? We have 31 placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials of ivermectin, and that's in acute treatment trials. Hey, I came in, I feel sick. Both, some of them started early in the disease, some started late in the disease. 30 out of 31 trials show a benefit. Used early in the disease, they're like 85% effective, and they have death prevention data in those 30 studies actually show that we reduce death. Placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials. And how much do we reduce death with any vaccine? Zero reduction in death demonstrated in placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials for any of the vaccines. Um, side effects of ivermectin? The side effects of ivermectin can only really be done when you're using rational doses. If I take the bottle and throw it at you really hard, um, I have not been able to get anybody to get a single side effect with ivermectin. And guys, that's pretty much what we see in the population. When they talk about overdosing on this thing, we've actually studied people. Typical doses that I will treat somebody with is 12 to 48 milligrams of ivermectin. We have people who have dosed this up over 100 milligrams and have not been able to get side effects. As a matter of fact, I think the last time we were able to show that it can injure livers, you had to get up to almost 200 milligrams, and then you could get a very small number of livers to have problems with ivermectin. 85% effective in some of the trials. Um, how about prophylaxis? We actually had a study done with ivermectin prophylaxis in nurses working in the COVID-19 unit in uh, Brazil, I believe it was. One dose of ivermectin once a week, 100% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19. Now, wait a minute. We got this thing that's dirt cheap. You take one dose a day, uh, one dose a week, and you can go work in a COVID-19 ward and have a 100% reduction in symptoms. How much symptom reduction did we get with the vaccines? Oh, we didn't get any symptom reduction with vaccines. They cause symptoms. Hmm, do people get hospitalized without symptoms? I don't think so. Therefore, you would expect it was 100% reduction in hospitalizations. That was the one thing that we were gonna get with the vaccines, was reduction in severe disease and hospitalizations. Hard to beat 100% effective in people who are being exposed all freaking day long um, in something which is dirt cheap and has no side effects. Um, yet, the, C the FDA actually came out with a statement where they said, um, we will not make any comment or consider any studies we have not paid for. We will make only our decisions on the studies that we have sponsored. You know that one study that didn't actually show benefit with ivermectin? Financed by a group that got its money from Echo Health Alliance. Does anybody know what Echo Health Alliance is? That's the private company, the private foundation, rather, that the NIH launders its research money through. And I'll just use the term. They give them money and say, you give it to people. So they give it to this state in Brazil to do a study on ivermectin. So they take a group of people who have just come down with acute symptomatic COVID-19 and they say, well, everybody's got moderate and severe disease. You're out of the trial. You don't get to be studied. Now we're going to take all these people who have mild COVID-19 disease and we're going to measure your liver function test because liver function tests go up when you're systemically inflamed. In the United States, we say that, oh, this is an elevation caused by inflammation when you have three times the upper limit of normal on your liver function tests. So we take our mild people, we measure the liver function tests, and they say, anybody who has even one and a half times the upper limit of normal, you're out of the trial. So now we have a group of people who are infected with COVID-19 and have symptoms. And I can imagine the symptom must be, I have a boo-boo. All right, you are so mildly inflamed from COVID-19, we randomize you to ivermectin or placebo, and it makes no difference. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, I have this brilliant idea for a study. I want to take a group of NFL football players, divide them in half, give some of them birth control pills and some of them placebo, and see if I can reduce pregnancies. <laughs> All right? So that's the kind of stuff that the FDA decided to base its opinion on. Seriously. Now, you start thinking whether or not your government's doing really good while we talk about the most active agent that has been seen in COVID-19 to date. So vitamin D is actually not a vitamin. Vitamin D is actually what we call an autocoid prohormone. What does that mean? Um, it means that it is taken in when you take it in, either made by your skin, which is, by the way, where you get almost all the vitamin D that you don't take from a supplement. There is almost none of this in food. All right. I once calculated up how much vitamin D, how much vitamin D whole milk you would have to drink 
to get a blood level of 40, and it was eight gallons of vitamin D whole milk a day. And that's if the dairy industry isn't lying about how much vitamin D is in vitamin D whole milk, which they are, all right? Um, turns out vitamin D is effective, is, is necessary for you to make natural killer cells. Vitamin D regulates the production of inflammatory cytokines. Remember, what is it that kills you from COVID-19? An overproduction of inflammatory cytokines. Turns out vitamin D is also effective in the generation of T helper cells, the cytotoxic T cells and B cells. And it's necessary for the development of macrophages to communicate properly with all of the immune system cells. If you go take caveman samples from equatorial Africa, you will see that caveman samples actually run vitamin D blood levels in the 155 to 170 range when you do that. So you and I were designed to run around the equator of Africa naked in the sunlight with darkly pigmented skin. We didn't live in houses 200,000 years ago either, all right? So right now, what's the average vitamin D blood level of the population in the United States? 20. If you're not taking a supplement, it's 20. Back in 2008, we had data that had already come out and showed that people with influenza and the common cold responded to vitamin D. That if you just gave them vitamin D, it would reduce the duration of symptoms, the severity of symptoms, the duration of shed, and the severity of viral shed. Very early on, we had this data. Um, so very early on in COVID-19, somebody did a great study and said, hey, let's look at all these people dying from COVID-19. We're gonna make a graph of the rate at which they die compared to their 25-hydroxyvitamin D level. And if you make that graph, you will see that as your 25-hydroxyvitamin D level goes higher, your risk of death drops in a linear fashion until you get to a blood level around 45 and it starts to level off, and at 55 it comes completely level. And when it becomes completely level, you have one quarter the risk of dying of the general population. 75% of the risk of dying from COVID-19 is simply due to your low 25-hydroxyvitamin D level being less than 55. Very early on, in the uh, COVID-19, we actually had placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials in COVID-19, giving people vitamin D that showed it reduced the duration and severity of symptoms, the duration and severity of viral shedding. There's a problem with vitamin D. We did some studies actually in acute illness. It did appear to reduce symptoms that make people get better. Didn't work so well when they got to the hospital though. Interesting thing about vitamin D, um, your liver has to convert it to the active form when you get chronically inflamed. Remember we talked about those liver function tests going up? Turns out when you've got a really bad severe illness because the government told you to go home for 10 days and come back when you're ready for the ventilator and you're all inflamed and these cytokines are running all over your body, your liver cells don't do a good job converting it. All right? As a matter of fact, there was actually a study done, again sponsored by Echo Health Alliance, where they actually did a study of vitamin D in acutely ill COVID-19 patients. Um, so the, the way they did this was they took a group of people and they gave them one dose of vitamin D, which is 200,000 international units. That is an enormous dose. It's interesting, when your liver is healthy, only 50,000 international units can be converted at one pass from your gut when you take it in by mouth and it goes through your liver. Only 50,000 international units can be converted to the active form, which is 25-hydroxyvitamin D. So if you take this great big dose and you throw it down a guy's throat when he's acutely ill, the most he could have converted was 50,000 units. He's probably gonna convert much less than that. Then it goes past Mr. Liver, goes out in the body. You're probably in here because you're overweight because being obese reduces your 25-hydroxyvitamin D blood level. And it goes into the fat-soluble tissues because it's a fat-soluble uh, molecule. And now your liver can't get it to turn it back very quickly into 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And they actually said, hey, we're gonna measure the blood levels of the people who take vitamin D and it took five days for their vitamin D blood levels to go after this one enormous dose. And it had no effect on the outcome of the disease. But I, I actually corresponded with the author of that paper. And I said, why did you dose vitamin D that way? When we're dosing acute disease with vitamin D, we give people 50,000 international units a day, every day for three straight days. And then we start giving them somewhere between two to 5,000 international units a day after that. And we do that for a month to keep their levels up, to get them, well, why didn't you dose it that way? And the researcher says, well, that's how they dose it in Europe. And I wrote back and I said, no, that's how they dose it for chronic maintenance in Europe. So if we've been giving you this bolster dose that we would have done, then we'll give you one big dose every week or every month after that, but we don't do it during acute disease. And there was another thing I noticed about this study. 
They didn't measure the vitamin D levels of anybody who died. Now, if you measured the vitamin D levels of anybody who died, you might well find that the blood levels didn't go up in the people who died, and then you'd be able to prove that vitamin D actually had an effect in the disease, because it would be different than dead people. So I called, sent back to the researcher, and I said, why didn't you measure the blood levels in anybody who died? That skews your study. You can't say that the levels went up in people when you don't measure the levels in everybody. And the response was, well, we didn't know when they were going to die. Does the blood, like, turn to stone, like, as soon as you take your last breath, that you can't get blood out of a human? Um, and I sent back and said, that's just not rational. And the response was, oh, good points. That's the, that's the kind of science that your federal government pays for. But you know, we do have a pretty good study done using 25-hydroxy vitamin D itself. Just bypass Mr. Liver after the poor guy's sick as snot. Let's just bypass Mr. Liver and give him the active form, 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Study done in Spain. 76 people coming into the hospital acutely diagnosed. All of them already put on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Why does that matter? Because if I group of people who have sinusitis and I put them all on amoxicillin and then I say I'm going to add cephalosporin on top of that versus placebo, you may not be able to show cephalosporin works because you've already got them on amoxicillin, right? I mean, if you make everybody get well with one thing, it's hard to prove the second thing works. So you set up 25-hydroxy vitamin D to fail. Placebo-controlled randomized tri blinded trial. Everybody's got a positive test. Everybody's bad enough to be hospitalized. 50 of these people given 25-hydroxy vitamin D wasn't even a very big dose, only about 2,200 international units. By the way, you remember 5,000 or 50,000 international units is how we bolster you with regular vitamin D. 26 people are going to get dummy pills on this. Nobody knows who's taking what. So out of the 26 people who get dummy pills, 13 go into the intensive care unit. 50 people who get active treatment, one goes into the intensive care unit. That is a 90% reduction, super statistically significant, meaning it's much more than 95% certain that the treatment during acutely ill hospitalized people with 25-hydroxy vitamin D reduces the ICU admission rate by 90%. There were two dead people in placebo, and the 50 people who took 25-hydroxy vitamin D Great big goose egg. Not a single dead person. Even the one guy who got to the ICU survived. Now, I am going to tell you that statistically that does not prove with 95% certainty that dirt cheap oral 25-hydroxy vitamin D reduces the death rate from COVID-19 in hospitalized people. But it's better data for death reduction than I have for a single vaccine. In every single study I have ever seen done with vitamin D, the side effects of vitamin D have been less than placebo. Vitamin D has been shown in a placebo-controlled randomized blinded trial where everyone was pre-screened for cancer before entering this tri the trial and re-screened for cancer at trial exit, and anyone who died got an autopsy and a chart review. It has been shown to reduce the risk of cancer by 60% as a minimum, more accurately 80%, and almost all of that cancer reduction can be explained by vitamin D. So, Side effects of vitamin D, not looking very bad. By the way, that study confirmed by a study from your own NIH that showed that when we gave vitamin D to black people, it reduced the risk of cancer. And despite these two studies, the NIH's conclusion after that was not to tell black people you should take vitamin D. It clearly reduces the risk of cancer. Their conclusion was, we need more research. But I was very excited from my 25-hydroxy vitamin D level, so I called up my local compounding pharmacist, and I said, hey, I got online, and I found a chemical company that will sell you 25-hydroxy vitamin D. It looks like that even after we pay your tech to put it in a capsule, we can get a two-week treatment for like five bucks. Dude, how fast can you have this stuff made up so I can give it to my patients? And he said, Dan, the FDA has already told us that if we compound up 25-hydroxy vitamin D, will we get a $50,000 fine and lose our license? By the way, if you want to come up on my phone, I have the recording from a local CVS pharmacy where the pharmacist admits that the reason he would not give my patient ivermectin that he had previously filled before for my patient who was using it because my patient had a vaccine complication. It was making him short of breath and ivermectin in two days reduced his symptoms by 50% and in five days reduced it by 80% tried something else, the shortness of breath came back, went back to the pharmacy to refill the ivermectin. No, you can't have it. 
unless Dr. Stock calls me up and tells me what his diagnosis is. So I called up and told this pharmacist, my person has a COVID-19 vaccine complication, and that's what they're taking it for. And they said, we'll check with corporate, but we have a corporate thing that says we can't give it out for COVID-19. I better check. And she came back and said, actually, CVS corporate says the only thing I can give it to somebody for is worms. So you guys may not know this, but CVS actually has contracts with the federal government. All right? Kroger, by the way, is doing the same thing. All of these large pharmacy chains have contracts with the insurance companies and the federal government. So now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to sit back and think about how well your federal government is handling things in COVID-19. All right? The quality of studies they pay for in vaccine and non-vaccine options, the risks and benefits of augmented natural immunity compared to what we see with vaccine immunity in developing studies, knowing the risks that you had before we even got into COVID-19. And I'm not even going to start a discussion of whether or not this is a man-made virus or whether or not this is naturally occurring. It's not naturally occurring. <laughs> All right. There is a greater chance that I am going to be the starting center for the Pittsburgh Penguins when they open the season in October, and I've seen Sidney Crosby play hockey, all right? Um, in any case, I want you to decide right now just how well your federal government has done in its handling of COVID-19. And then if you decide that it's not done particularly well, you're going to have to come up with some explanations of why it did so badly, and you're not going to be able to explain those, at least I can't explain those, based upon biology, physics, chemistry, anatomy, mathematics, statistical analysis. I can't come up with an explanation for the reason they have behaved the way they have. There have been all kinds of charges of what are called conspiracy theories, all right? Um, you know, whenever somebody talks about a conspiracy theory, the first thing that goes through my mind is, well, Hitler did gas six million Jews, right? Hitler did take people from his concentration camps, dress them up in Polish military uniforms, shoot them at the border with Poland, photograph them, and then give those photographs to the German people claiming he'd been attacked by Poland to justify and get the German people to go along with the invasion of Poland. So it seems to me the difference between a conspiracy theory and a conspiracy is in a conspiracy theory that's disproven you actually have some other explanation for what you saw, and you've done a research of all of the variables to come out and see that the conspiracy uh, allegation can't be true. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't have another explanation besides the conspiracy theory for the reason my government behaved the way it did. I don't know that this has any effect on this, but I do know the Bayh-Dole Act of 1984 exists. Does anybody know what the Bayh-Dole Act of 1984 was? Oh. So in 1984, there was a revision to patent law passed in the United States by your U.S. Congress that said if the federal government took your tax dollars and used it to do research that led to something patentable, whoever did the research could claim the patent for their personal profit. It is in the Federal Register. I have not looked up all 1,000 of these patents but I am told by people that he has over 1,000 patents that he has garnered since he has become director of the, CD, of the uh, NIAID. I've never heard him refute that allegation. Um, those patents, by the way, are on novel coronaviruses, the testing for novel coronaviruses, and the genome for the novel coronaviruses that you would need to make a vaccine. And by the way, he's not the only person at the CDC and the NIH who holds these patents. Now, I don't know if that has any effect on things or not, I know that at your FDA, that the FDA gets one-third of its funding, not from your tax dollars. One-third of its money comes from the fees and fines that it collects from drug and device manufacturers. Understand what that means. If that industry went away tomorrow, everybody at the FDA would get a one-third pay cut. I also know that when you work at the FDA, the real big payoff is not that you work at the FDA. There is zero cooling off period, and you can leave the FDA and go work for any pharmaceutical company. Usually what you become is the director of relations with the FDA, lobbying your guy who took your post at the FDA, making a lot more money working for the drug company that you were cuddled up to all of the time you were at the FDA. 
Now, maybe these things don't have an effect on the brains of people at the FDA. Maybe these things don't have an effect on the brains of the people at the NIH and the CDC. Maybe I'm going to be the starting center for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, and then, if all of this begins to make you very uncomfortable with the way your government works, I will encourage you to consider uh, the Convention of States. So, this is what I've been trying to get you two guys all day long, and I'm just going to shamelessly admit that. All right? What is the Convention of States? Well, I'm going to bore you with a little history now, because I haven't bored you enough with biochemistry. Uh, how many people here know that the 13 colonies formed another country before they made the United States of America? Ah, okay. So for the first 10 years after they got their independence from England, the 13 colonies formed a country called the Confederate States of America. Had a very weak central government, couldn't raise taxes, couldn't even pay its own army, couldn't settle disputes between states. Um, and the reason they made this really weak central government is because all 13 colonies were terrified of giving their power to another government. After all, they just had another government that was beating the stink out of them for years, right? But after 10 years of total dysfunction, the 13 colonies realized that this isn't working out right, so they had the Constitutional Convention of 1787 to write a new constitution, and that went on for months and months and months because they were very terrified of the monster they were building. That's why they came up with the separation of powers and the three different things, and they came up with everything they could do and debated it out, everything, and it came to the very last day, and they think they had this monster under control. And on the very last day, they had designed the amendment process so that the Congress would propose amendments by two-thirds votes of both houses, and then those amendments could be ratified by three-quarters votes of the states, and if they were ratified, they became law. And you will notice they were not going to let the federal government amend itself. Right? Uh -huh. And on this very last day, Colonel George Mason of Virginia stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, I think we may have a problem here that we've overlooked. We're all sure that this government is going to become corrupt eventually because governments tend to do that. And if this government becomes corrupt, the only way right now to propose the changes that would fix it is for the corrupt people to propose the changes themselves. And do you really think they'll do that? So he proposed that another clause be added to Article 5 that dealt with amendments that said that if two-thirds of states passed a resolution calling for a convention to propose amendments on a given topic, that the convention had to be called, there was nothing the federal government could do about it, that convention could propose its own amendments, and then if those amendments were ratified by three-quarters of the states, they became law, and nothing the federal government could do could stop that from happening. And ladies and gentlemen, in the months and months and months that went on at the Constitutional Convention, there was only one proposal that was unanimously approved without debate, and that was Colonel George Mason's um, recommendation. As a matter of fact, four different people who were taking notes of the Constitutional Convention basically wrote down in their notes that the entire room looked around and said, oh yeah, we got to do that. <laughs> so right now, there have actually been 15 states in the United States that have passed a resolution calling for a convention to propose amendments on three topics. The first one, to force the federal government into fiscal compliance and fiscal responsibility. Does anybody know how far in debt your federal government is right now? $31 trillion. And they're trying to add another uh, four point, uh, no, another five million right now with two bills they're going through. Second thing they wanted to do is reduce the terms of service in the federal government. And the third thing they wanted to do was to make it so that it reduced the power of the federal government. And the way the resolution is written, they may not propose any amendments that would increase the, the power of the federal government, only amendments that reduce the power of the federal government. Fifteen states have already passed that. Let's give Indiana a hand. We are one of those 15 states. All right. Um, so what would I want you to do if we've already got that passed? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, founding fathers always intended that uh, government was going to be a participation sport. All right. There's an old saying that people gets the government it deserves. All right. So somebody in our legislature has to nominate the delegates that are going to go to that convention. All right. Those delegates all have what are called faithful delegate laws in the state of Indiana, which means the legislature can give those delegates instructions. You must support this amendment. You may not support that amendment. And if they don't follow those instructions when they're there, they can actually come back and go to jail. Mm -hmm. So we have to select those people. In addition, if you sign onto the Convention of States, and I have both things that you can fill out here, and I'll take home and enter them in the computer records of the Convention of States, or you can sign up online. I even have buttons over there if you want to wear one that looks as pretty on your lapel as mine does on me. And with you signed up, we can then use this to show people in the states that have not passed 
how much people support the idea of, hey, we need to take power away from this federal government. All right. We need it to be fiscally responsible. We need you not to be able to stay 31 years at the NIAID and collect so many patents and become so many intertwined with all these other people that you can come with your brain so fried that you think this is the right response to COVID-19. All right. Um, and not only that, if you allow us to give you uh, email texts and uh, emails and texts, Convention of States is allowed to support legislation. So, for instance, if someone were to propose legislation in the state of Indiana that say ban the state of ended the state of emergency and ban vaccine discrimination, then we would be able to send you notices and say, hey, please, if you support this, call up your representative and your senator at the state level and beg them to support this bill. Because I can tell you what the federal government founders knew when they were making the thing is the guys in Washington, D.C. really aren't going to be spending a lot of time with the people they take care of, but the guys in the states do. All right, and they're scared of you. So we have a big problem with the federal government. We have a country of 320 million highly diverse population, the most highly diverse population of any country in the world, that is absolutely ruled by 560 people, 100 senators, 450 representatives, nine Supreme Court justices, and one president. All right? And you know what, of those guys in Congress, there's probably only 10 of them that really have any power anyway. So now you're down to 20 people run a country of 320 million people. Nine of them you can never rebuke. The others you get to rebuke between one, every two and uh, six years through an election process that's highly stilted and favored in front of lobbyists. How well elections been working for y'all lately? Anybody like to see some laws that say ban lobbying? All right, because of the Supreme Court's ruling on the uh, Citizens United, the only way to ban lobbying right now is to have a convention of states, unless you think Congress is gonna propose its own lobbying ban. They're actually proposing right now through the For the People Act that they'll actually be able to take their lobbying money and spend it on their own personal expenses instead, all right? If you want that stopped, if you want to make it so that everybody has a political spending account so that the only way you can influence um, a legislator is through your medical, your spending account, and you can influence your legislator just as much as Bill Gates can, and nobody can influence any more than that, you're going to need amendments. And unless you think the federal government is going to propose those amendments, I suggest the convention states process is something you ought to consider. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been very kind to hear me prattle on now for as long as my mouth has been running. We are almost up on two hours. You are some very patient people. I am going to stop talking and answer any questions.